0: What Jesus meant was this. He said to man, you have a wonderful personality. Develop it. Be yourself. To his own friends, Jesus says the same thing. He tells them to be themselves and not to be always worrying about other things. What do other things matter? Man is complete in himself. When they go into the world, the world will disagree with them. That is inevitable. The world hates individualism. But this is not to trouble them. They are to be calm and self-centered. If a man takes their cloak, they are to give him their coat, just to show that material things are of no importance. If people abuse them, they are not to answer back. What does it signify? The things people say of a man do not alter a man. He is what he is. Public opinion is of no value whatsoever. Even if people employ actual violence, they are not to be violent in turn. That would be to fall to the same low level. After all, Even in prison, a man can be quite free. His soul can be free. His personality can be untroubled. He can be at peace. And above all things, they are not to interfere with other people or judge them in any way. Oscar Wilde. Welcome back to Everyday Anarchism, the show that finds anarchism in your everyday life. I'm your host, Graham Colbertson. This week's episode is Jesus of Nazareth, part two, Jesus of Nazareth. Last time we wanted to take Jesus back from the Romans. This week, we are going to view him as an anarcho-communist, as I think would be a better way of viewing him. Remember, if you have questions or comments, email me at everydayanarchismpodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach me through the website everydayanarchism.com. I want as many perspectives on this as possible. I want to hear from you. There is nothing less anarchist than my authoritative voice being the only one you hear. So I thought I'd begin by attacking what I would view as a misconception of the anarcho-communist Jesus. There's a long tradition, going back at least to Thomas Paine in the late 18th century, that when you realize that the church has deceived you about the texts and that the authoritarian hierarchy was a later Roman concept, that means that everything the church said was a lie. And that means your only choice is atheism. If the church says that Jesus is God and the church is lying about everything, then Jesus wasn't God. One of the most widely used anarchist slogans is no gods, no masters. So anarchists can like Jesus as an anti-Roman revolutionary, but they can't like him as God. Believing in God means believing in authority, hierarchy, etc. And we do definitely see people on both sides of this argument making that argument. No gods, no masters is the anarchist formulation. If you have a God, you have a master, and masters are bad. Here's a Catholic formulation of how if you have a God, you have a master, it's an authoritarian formulation from a 19th century Catholic journal. Give me a people where boiling passions and worldly greed are calmed by faith, hope, and charity. A people which sees this earth as a pilgrimage and the other life as a true fatherland. A people taught to admire and revere in Christian heroism its very poverty and its very suffering. A people that loves and adores in Jesus Christ the firstborn of all the oppressed. And in his cross the instrument of universal salvation. Give me, I say, a people formed in this mold and socialism will not merely be easily defeated, but impossible to be thought of. That's from an Italian journal called Civita Cattolica. Sorry for my bad pronunciation. So this quote from Civita Cattolica links the same two ideas that are linked in the standard anarchist attack on Christianity just from the opposite angle. To be a Christian is to accept poverty, to accept suffering, to not try to make the world a better place, to be happy and poor and be happy that you are poor and just wait for it to be fixed later. That's what the anarchists are attacking. And you can see there's really two ideas here. The first one is the idea that Jesus really is God, that God exists, that there is a supernatural world, and Jesus wasn't a great teacher, a proto-communist, a prophet. Jesus is God. And this understanding of God should override all potential other understandings. The second Christian belief is that as God, Jesus didn't come to save us in this world. He came from the other world. The other world is the one that's important. And so even if he is God, we need to believe that God is commanding us to change this world. As opposed to that quote from Civita Catholica which tells us God doesn't want us to change this world. He in fact wants us to sit and suffer. So if you're an anarchist, you can attack, I would say one or both of these ideas. Um, Option one is just lose the first one, Jesus wasn't God, and say that disproves the second one. So we don't have to listen to him and he was wrong. Jesus wasn't God, that was a lie told by Paul and Augustine. So when he says it's great to be weak and do what Caesar says, That's just wrong. Don't listen to Jesus. It's all a lie. Option two is to say that Jesus wasn't God, but that's okay. He was still a great teacher. He was still an anarchist. He was still important to us. You just got to strip away the platonic mumbo jumbo. Offering option one, which I think is the standard anarchist option, is Emma Goldman. And yes, I will put her in every episode I can. Like Kropotkin and Graeber, She is someone I can go back to over and over again. Here's Emma. Red Emma, as they called her. The Christian religion and morality extols the glory of the hereafter and therefore remains indifferent to the horrors of the earth. Indeed, the idea of self-denial and of all that makes for pain and sorrow is the test of human worth, its passport to the entry into heaven. Christ made his appearance as the leader of the people, the redeemer of the Jews from Roman dominion. But the moment he began his work, he proved that he had no interest in the earth, in the pressing immediate needs of the poor, and the disinherited of his time. What he preached was a sentimental mysticism, obscure and confused ideas, lacking originality and vigor. Ouch. Red Emma with the sick burn on Jesus. Um, sentimental mysticism, obscure and confused ideas. Jesus wasn't God. And he also wasn't a good thinker or a valuable teacher. His only value was that he was supposed to save the Jews from the Romans, and he didn't. He told them to render unto Caesar. So not only was he not God, he wasn't even a Jewish revolutionary. He was just a loser. Here's Emma again. When the Jews, according to the Gospels, withdrew from Jesus, when they turned him over to the cross, they may have been bitterly disappointed in him who promised them so much and gave them so little. So in this reading, it's not at all ironic that Jesus became the Roman God, but exactly what you would expect. Jesus was the opiate of the masses, as Marx would say. He literally told the contemporary Jews who were being oppressed by Caesar to obey Caesar and then he didn't resist when the Romans executed him, thereby tacitly accepting Roman law. If your primary goal as an emperor is to keep the little people in line, then you give them a religion that tells them the little people always win, but only after they die. And in the meantime, they'll get more happiness points after they die if they don't resist the government. That's a group of people destined to become cattle. And that explains the quote from Civita Cattolica earlier. Socialism means fixing society so the last shall be first. But if all the last are convinced that the way to become first is to stay last until the day they die, well, that's a pretty good deal. If you're Caesar. So now we've dealt with anarchist option number one, no gods, no masters. And Jesus was the ultimate God of the masters. He was claiming to serve the poor, while actually enslaving them. This makes him the perfect Roman patsy. But let's do anarchist option number two. And by the way, I am gonna drop anarchist option number three and spend most of the episode on this, but I did wanna get both of these ideas on the table as popular anarchist responses to Jesus that you should know and understand. Anarchist option number two is drop the God part. You just say that Plato or Paul or Augustine or whoever slapped the God part later on. And these people, when they look at what Goldman called obscure and confused ideas, actually, they say these ideas are profound, are beautiful, are original. They are a blueprint for an anarcho-communist paradise. Just one on earth because we're dropping the God bit. We can see a version of that in that opening quote from Oscar Wilde. Here's a bit of that quote again. The things people say of a man do not alter a man. He is what he is. Public opinion is of no value whatsoever. Even if people employ actual violence, they are not to be violent in turn. That would be to fall to the same low level. After all, even in prison, a man can be quite free. His soul can be free. His personality can be untroubled. He can be at peace. And above all things, they are not to interfere with other people or judge them in any way. This is Jesus as Henry David Thoreau, sitting in prison, condemning American slavery and imperialism. This is Jesus as Martin Luther King Jr. also sitting in prison and condemning American racism and imperialism. You can see that some things have not changed as much as we would like, but that definitely didn't stop Thoreau and MLK from still fighting. This is Jesus as a revolutionary, but there's no mention in Wild of heaven, hell, God, whatever. Jesus is a great teacher, and example, He's not the redeemer sent from heaven. My favorite version of this Jesus, maybe my favorite version of anarchism, certainly one of my top versions, comes from Gerard Winstanley, the 17th century religious revolutionary and anarcho-communist known as a digger and the leader of the diggers. I've mentioned them before. The diggers believe that everyone could just get together and farm and there would be paradise. Winstanley has this mad and wonderful vision and someday he'll get a starring role in an episode but for now, we can just use a taste of him. So here's one quote from Win Stanley. He says their mission is, quote, making the earth a common treasury for all, both rich and poor, that everyone that is born in the land may be fed by the earth, his mother that brought him forth, according to the reason that rules in creation. So everyone can be happy on the earth, according to Win Stanley. You don't have to wait till later. You can have the perfect world right now. You just need to make everyone a farmer, have no bosses, no lawyers, especially lawyers. Win Stanley really hates lawyers, as you know. The anarchist tradition is deeply against lawyers. Heaven is not the other world; it is this world. Once you make it anarcho-communist, here's some more Win Stanley. Priests lay claim to heaven after they are dead, yet they require their heaven in this world too, and grumble mightily against the people that will not give them a large temporal maintenance. And yet they tell the poor people that they must be content with their poverty and they shall have heaven hereafter. But why may we, and I think this we here when Stanley means the poor, not have our heaven here, that is a comfortable livelihood in the earth, and heaven hereafter too, as well as you, the you being the priests. So besides the obligatory shot at the priests who are living large while preaching that it is good to be poor, The crucial thing here is that when Stanley says we can have heaven on earth, Jesus came to transform the earth and it doesn't really matter if there's a heaven and it doesn't matter if he's God. And personally, I don't have a sense that when Stanley believes in the supernatural, even though he occasionally makes reference to the kingdom of God later, he's really focused on earth and Jesus's teaching. Finally, a quick shout out to Leo Tolstoy, who believes roughly the same thing. Uh, Tolstoy got mentioned last week. He'll come up again. He is unavoidable. But I decided Oscar Wilde and Winston Stanley were enough for now. The key thing here is that if Jesus is God, he is a God who seems to care much more about this world than the next world. So get rid of God, or at least the insistence on heaven, but keep Jesus. But I've got another option. For you, especially if you are interested in maintaining a Christian faith. it's You can believe that Jesus is God and believe that Jesus was an anarcho-communist, and you can fit these two together pretty well. And I have prepared this episode. It's probably the most quotes I've ever prepared in an episode, and if it gets tedious, just email me and I'll do it differently next time. Around the work of a man named Walter Rauschenbusch, he was one of the leaders of what's called the Social Gospel Movement. It's an early 20th century socialist Christian movement. You may have heard of liberation theology, which is a mid-20th century Catholic socialist movement, mostly in South America, but those ideas were not generated in South America with Catholic leaders. They were generated by Rauschenbusch and some of his colleagues in the United States of America, and they spread... South later, the some of the leaders of liberation theology are still alive, and it still gets talked about. Social Christianity or the social gospel seems to be almost completely forgotten. So I want to give Rauschenbusch his time to shine. Rauschenbusch just goes through Jesus's life and teaching, and argues every time that Jesus is a socialist. Rauschenbusch doesn't identify as an anarchist, which makes sense, since usually people who are not part of the anarchist movement, assume that anarchists are nothing but violence, and and Rauschenbusch is against violence. But he is a socialist who doesn't want the government to bring socialism, but wants voluntary association to bring socialism. And as you know, my definition of anarchism is basically voluntary socialism. So for me, at least, within the context of everyday anarchism, Rauschenbusch is definitely an anarchist. And I've prepared these quotes From his book, The Social Principles of Jesus, which was a a talk he gave in 1916 to college students in London, because he thought college students, then as now, were being prepared for a life of business, of success, of power, and were sort of viewed, both Jesus and socialism, as the enemy. Or rather, they accepted a Jesus who was the Roman Jesus, who affirmed their power. And Rauschenbusch wanted them to question that. So let's jump into Rauschenbusch. He writes, the climax of Jesus's difficulties was a mind preoccupied by property worries or lured by the illusions of wealth. He early found then, devotion to property is likely to be a rival to the higher interests and the common good. Social Christianity or the social gospel is a fusion between the new understanding created by the social sciences and the teaching and moral ideals of Christianity. This combination was inevitable. It has already registered social effects of the highest importance. If it can win the active minds of the present generation of college students, it will swing a part of the enormous organized forces of the Christian church to bear on the social tasks of our American communities. And that will help to create the nobler America which we see by faith. Christians have never fully understood Christianity. Wow, okay. So 2,000 years after Christ, Rauschenbusch says, Christians have never fully understood Christianity. I think this ties right back into the Gandhi quote from last week. There is a real Jesus, but he's been buried. His message is hidden. Christianity is not the message of Jesus. Note that Rauschenbusch assumes that Christianity should be intellectual and says it's connected to science and that it should be revolutionary, transformative. I'm aware that there's a big tradition in America of it being none of these things. In fact, there's a popular American atheist view that Christianity is anti-revolutionary, anti-intellectual, anti-science. But Rauschenbusch is one of the great leaders of Christianity in the 20th century in America, and he says Christianity can be revolutionary, intellectual, and scientific. In fact, Rauschenbusch's definition of the kingdom of God, which he drew from Tolstoy, there's Tolstoy again, is basically the same as my definition of anarchism, which I drew from Kropotkin. Here's Rauschenbusch's definition of the kingdom of God. Jesus was the initiator of the kingdom of God. It is a real thing now in operation. It is within us and among us, gaining ground in our intellectual life and in our social institutions. It overlaps and interpenetrates all existing organizations, raising them to a higher level when they are good, resisting them when they are evil, quietly revolutionizing the old social order and changing it into the new. It suffers terrible reverses. We are in the midst of one now. But after a time, it may become apparent that a master hand has turned the situation and laid the basis of victory on the wrecks of defeat. The kingdom of God is always coming. You can never lay your hand on it and say it is here. But such fragmentary realizations of it as we have alone make life worth living. The memories which are still sweet and dear when the fire begins to die in the ashes are the memories of days when we lived fully in the kingdom of heaven, toiling for it, suffering for it, and feeling the stirring of the godlike and eternal life within us. The most humiliating and crushing realization is that we have betrayed our heavenly fatherland and sold out for 30 pieces of silver. Okay, uh... If you listen to the opening episode, I think I could have read this out as my definition of everyday anarchism or mutual aid. Actually, let me just read a chunk of that again. Jesus was the initiator of anarchism. It is a real thing now in operation. It is within us and among us, gaining ground in our intellectual life and in our social institutions. It overlaps and interpenetrates all existing organizations, Raising them to a higher level when they are good, resisting them when they are evil, quietly revolutionizing the old social order, and changing it to the new. Anarchism is always coming. You can never lay your hand on it and say it is here. But such fragmentary realizations of it as we have alone make life worth living. Rauschenbusch's Kingdom of God and My Everyday Anarchism, I think, are identical. What does Rauschenbusch say? He says that mutual aid underlies everything and is what makes every organization work. It's not about one big revolution, but a million small revolutions. It makes life worth living. It generates moral resistance. It will never be obviously here in a one versus zero, yesterday was authoritarian, tomorrow is anarchism. It's always coming. So I think Red Emma got this one wrong. Tolstoy win Stanley Rauschenbusch Dorothy Day, who I've mentioned in the past and will cover more in the future. They say that Christianity is anarchism, and I am convinced. It's just not the version of Christianity that the rulers like and that you will find in the average American church. Okay, so it's time to let Rauschenbusch uh, walk us through some key moments uh, in the Bible and show how they make Jesus an anarchist. You can say socialist. That's the term Rauschenbusch uses. Remember, <laughs> Kropotkin says communism is anarchy and anarchy is communism. And socialism and communism are basically the same thing. Oh boy, I, I blundered into that one. We'll, we'll argue about that later. Here's a, a story that Jesus tells when uh, someone asks him, How can you help me? What should I do? How can I get my inheritance from my brother? How can I get what property is due to me? Teacher, bid my brother divide the inheritance with me. But he, that's Jesus, said unto him, that's the man who asked the question, man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And he said unto them, take heed and keep yourselves from all covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And he spoke a parable unto them, saying, the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he reasoned within himself, saying, what shall I do? because I have not where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This I will do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will bestow all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, be merry. But God said unto him, Thou foolish one, this night is thy soul required of thee, and the things which thou hast prepared, who shall they be? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. If you didn't follow the parable, because I'm using the beautiful but somewhat obscure King James version, a rich man was so rich he didn't have anywhere to put all of his stuff. And he thought, oh, what should I do with it? And then he thought, oh, nothing. I'll just build a bigger barn so I can get even (laughs) richer. Not gonna use my wealth, I'm just gonna grow it. Here's Rauschenbusch. Most men today would have no fault to find with this man. He was only doing what the modern world is unanimously trying to do. Having made a pile, he proposed to make a bigger pile. I'm told that kids these days uh, use the word bag instead of pile. That's me, not Rauschenbusch. Meanwhile, he slapped his soul on the back and smacked his lips in anticipation. To Jesus the Fat Farmer was a tragic comedy. In the first place, an unseen hand was waiting to snuff out his candle. To plan life as if it consisted in an abundance of material wealth is something of a miscalculation in a world where death is part of the scheme of things. In the second place, Jesus saw no higher purpose in the man's aim and outlook to redeem his acquisitiveness. The man was a sublimated chipmunk, <laughs> gloating over bushels of pig nuts. If wealth is is saved to raise and educate children or achieve some social good, it deserves moral respect or admiration. But if the acquisitive instinct is without social feeling or vision and centered on self, it gets no respect, at least from Jesus. Ouch, (laughs) ouch, burn. Um, Before I get to Rauschenbusch, I I just wanna point out that Jesus says, what do you want? You want me to judge? I'm not a judge. I'm not interested in the legal system. Pontius Pilate was interested in the legal system, and that's the guy who killed Jesus. If you're asking Jesus to intervene in earthly concerns, you have missed the point. The point is not earthly concerns, but to make earth into the kingdom of God by eliminating earthly concern. Jesus isn't interested in lawyers. He's interested in changing people's minds, when Stanley would love that. So Rauschenbusch calls this man a sublimated chipmunk (laughs) if you want money to do something good with it great but money for the sake of money is just dumb if your goal is to make more money you are like a chipmunk who is hoarding more nuts than the chipmunk can eat your life has no meaning if you want money because money has no meaning except for what it can do so if you don't want money for anything except for having money Your life literally has no meaning. At least if you collect stamps or coins or paintings or baseball cards, you might enjoy them for themselves. Money cannot be enjoyed for itself. It is pointless. Rauschenberg says the wealthy get no respect from Jesus. And he makes it clear they get lots of respect in 1916. I would say in 2021. And I would say from Christians. But not Jesus. Jesus over and over and over again attacks the wealthy. Jesus was a socialist. Rauschenbusch sees it. All right, here's more Rauschenbusch. This time he's quoting uh, Luke still, but he's talking about John the Baptist, who he says shares Jesus's vision. And the multitudes asked him, him being, in this case, John the Baptist, saying, What then must we do? And he answered and said unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath food, let him do likewise. And there came also publicans to be baptized, and they said unto him, Teacher, what must we do? And he said unto them, Extort no more than that which is appointed you. And soldiers who asked him, saying, And we, what must we do? And he said unto them, Extort from no man by violence, neither accuse anyone wrongfully, and be content with your wages. That's Luke chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. Rauschenberg says, John told the people that a new era was coming and they would have to get a new mind and manner of life as an outfit for it. The people asked for specifications. John's suggestions ran along two lines. He encouraged the plain working people to be neighborly and friendly and to share with a man who was hard up. With powerful individuals like hired soldiers and Roman tax farmers, he insisted that they must quit using their physical force and legal power as a cinch to extort money. In other words, they must quit grafting. In the kingdom of God, the big black book of graft will be closed and men will no longer eat their protesting fellow men. The more we realize that some form of graft is at the bottom of most easy incomes, the more good sense we will see in this kind of evangelism. Bam. No violence, no coercion, no graft. Once you have power, you are going to be corrupt. And if you have wealth, it was corruption that brought you that wealth, either yours or the system's. There is, for John the Baptist slash Jesus slash Rauschenbusch, no version of non-corrupt power. If people are rich and are powerful, corruption made that happen. Call back to Tolkien, all forms of power are bad. So what will we do when we don't have an army and a government to take up taxes and redistribute the wealth? Rauschenbusch's answer is mutual aid be neighborly and friendly and share with a man who was hard up. The kingdom of Jesus can be realized on earth, but it can't be realized by coercion and taxation. Only mutual aid, only everyday anarchism can create the kingdom of God. Okay. I hope you're enjoying Rauschenbusch because I've got more. This is all basically one passage. I'm going to break it up. Um, but There is a ton of it, and I'll just step in and provide my analysis, but Rauschenbusch does most of the work. One more passage from Luke. Now there was a certain rich man, and he was clothed in purple and fine linen, faring sumptuously every day, and a certain beggar named Lazarus was laid at his gate, full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs that fall from the rich man's table. Yea, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died, and he was carried away by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died, and was buried. And in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham far off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. And now here he is comforted, and thou art in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, that they would pass from hence to you may not be able, and that none may cross over from thence to us. That's Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Here's Rauschebusch. Why does Jesus send the rich man to hell as if it were a matter of course? No crimes or vices are alleged. It must be that a life given over to sumptuous living and indifferent to the want and misery of a fellow man at the doorstep seemed to Jesus a deeply immoral and sinful life. Jesus exerted all his energies to bring men closer together in love. But wealth divides. It creates semi-human relations between social classes. So that a small dole seems to be a full discharge of obligations toward the poor, and manly independence and virtue may be resented as offensive. Plainly, Jesus felt that the acquisitive instinct, like the sex instinct, easily breaks bounds and becomes ravenous. There is even less natural limit to it. It absorbs the energies of intellect and will. As with the rich fool, the horizon of life is filled with chances to make the pile grow bigger. Life seems to consist of money and the problems of money. People are valued according to that standard. Marriages are arranged for it. Politics is run for it. Wars are begun for it. Creative, artistic, and intellectual impulses are shouldered aside, fall asleep, or die. Property is intended to secure freedom of action and self-development. In fact, it often chains men and clips their wings. This is what Jesus called the deceitfulness of riches and the darkening of the inner eye. In the case of the young ruler, Jesus encountered the fact that wealth bars men out of the world of their ideals. The question was not whether the young man could get to heaven, but whether he could have a share in the real life, in the kingdom of right relations. It is hard to acquire great wealth without doing injustice to others. It is hard to possess it and yet deal with others on the basis of equal humanity. It is hard to give it away even without doing mischief." It is an historical fact that the brilliant body of intellectuals of the first and second centuries was blind to what proved to be the most fruitful and influential movement of all times, and it was left to slaves and working men to transmit it and save it from suppression at the cost of their lives. Then Jesus turns to the toiling and heavy-laden people about him with the offer of a new kind of leadership. None of the brutal self-assertion of the Caesars and of all conquerors here but a gentle and humble spirit and an obedience which was pleasure and brought release to the soul. These words express his consciousness of being different and of bearing within him the beginnings of a new spiritual constitution of humanity. Okay, I've got a little more of this quote. It's the longest quote I've done yet on this show. It's probably too long, but I'm really struggling to cut it down. It is so glorious. Before I move on with the quote, a couple of things I want to point out. First, Jesus condemns the rich man to hell and it's not explained. As Rauschenbusch points out, it's assumed. It's one of the first principles of Jesus. If you are rich, you go to hell. Wealth and power are synonymous with cruelty, division, unneighborliness. The wise people know nothing of Jesus, neither do the powerful. It's the slaves and the working class. And as Mike Duncan pointed out, women but Rauschenbusch is writing in the sort of standard sexist tradition of intellectual writing so he he leaves that part out these are the three oppressed groups women slaves and the working class who have kept christianity alive now back to Rauschenbusch's theory of jesus We have seen that three convictions were axiomatic within Jesus, so that all his reasoning and his moral imperatives were based on them, just as all thought and work in physics is based on gravitation. These convictions were the sacredness of life and personality, the solidarity of the human family, and the obligation of the strong to stand up for all whose life is impaired or whose place within humanity is denied. It cannot be questioned that these convictions were a tremendous and spontaneous force in the spirit of Jesus that alone suffices to align him with all idealistic minds to whom man is more than matter more than labor force a mysterious participant of the spiritual powers of the universe it aligns him with all men of solidaristic conviction who are working for genuine community life in village and city, for a nation with fraternal institutions and fraternal national consciousness, and for a coming family of nations and races. It aligns him with all the exponents of the democratic social spirit of our day, who feel the wrongs of the common people, and are trying to make the world juster and more fraternal. The best forces of modern life are converging along these lines. There is no contradiction between them and the spirit of Jesus. On the contrary, They are largely the product of his spirit, diffused and organized in the Western world. He was the initiator. We are the interpreters and agents. Nor has he been outstripped like an early inventor and discoverer whose crude work is honored only because others were able to improve on it. Quite the contrary. The more vividly these spiritual convictions glow in the heart of any man, the more will he feel that Jesus is still ahead, still the inspiring force. As soon as we get beyond theory to life and action, We know that we are dependent for the spiritual powers in modern life on the continued influence of Jesus Christ over the lives of others. This version of Jesus is the exact opposite of Emma Goldman's conviction about Jesus. I think there's a pretty easy solution, though. As Rauschenbusch points out, throughout this text, Christians don't understand Jesus. So-called Christians don't seem actually to be followers of Christ. Socialism wasn't created in contrast to Jesus. In fact, it seems to be the scientific expression of the ethic of Jesus. And love of money doesn't come from Jesus, even though Christians seem to be completely okay with it. I love that earlier Rauschenberg says that even giving away money is hard. There's no anarchist tradition that I know of that values charity. Whether your name is Andrew Carnegie or Jeff Bezos, charity is about robbing the poor and then giving some resources back to some of them but on your own terms, or maybe even giving resources to the wealthy and powerful, like when people donate to Harvard. That's not mutual aid. That's not solidarity, unless it's solidarity of the wealthy. That's the boss being nice to you for self-serving reasons, and if your kids starved in the meantime, well, that's on you. Okay, to finish out Rauschenbusch, maybe you've gotten tired of him I maybe I'll do an audiobook of the social principles of Jesus. I love reading this stuff like ambition and the property instinct. The religious impulse may go wrong and subject society to its distortions or tyranny. Jesus always stood for an ethical and social outcome of religion. He sought to harness the great power of religion to righteousness and love. With a mind so purely religious, we might expect that he would make all earthly and social interests subservient to personal religion. The fact that he reversed it seems clear proof that he was socially minded and that the kingdom of God as a right social organism was the really vital thing to him. Jesus came from the other side, but he came to make this side, earth, look like heaven. Not to convince us that this side, earth, is irrelevant compared to heaven. He wanted to create a new social organism. There uh, Rauschenbusch is drawing on, I would guess the work of Kropotkin, whether he knows it or not. So let's talk about that social organism. The kingdom of God is meant to be a real thing on earth. And in fact, This is what the kingdom of God on earth looked like before the Romanification of Jesus in the fourth century. Here it is described in the book of Acts. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things in common. And sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. That's Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Fellowship. Together. Together having all things in common, ate with the gladness and singleness of heart, having favor with all the people, sold what they had and gave them to all men. This is anarcho-communism. And it is also how the Bible describes the early church. It's communism because they hold everything together. It's anarchism because people are compelled to join them by their hearts or by the truth, not by governmental coercion. What does it mean to remain in this community? It means to break bread together. It means to sell everything you have and pool it together. It means no wealth, no power, nothing but mutual aid and going forth with good hearts. So there you have it. Jesus was mystical and spoke in parables. The texts are corrupted. It's hard to know what he said. But the Bible describes what Christians did after they had become Christians and what it meant to be a Christian was to be an anarchist. Now I'm gonna bring back the pragmatic method. I used it in the discussion last week of Tolstoy and Bakunin, and it will come up a lot in the science episode. Beliefs, according to the pragmatic method, are to be understood by their effects on the holders of the belief and the works those holders do. If Tolstoy says, believe in God and do mutual aid to all without coercion, and Bakunin says, stop believing in God and do mutual aid to all without coercion, then the Pragmatic Method says they actually believe the same thing. Tolstoy calls it God, Bakunin calls it atheism, but it produces the same outcome. So according to the Pragmatic Method, it's the same belief. William James calls the Pragmatic Method a new name for some old ideas. And one of the old names for the Pragmatic Method is the fruit of the Spirit. Here's the book of James. By the way, he uh, explains this a little, but when he says respecter of persons, he means respecting someone based on their status as opposed to just as a human being. So, respecter of persons sounds good to me, but that means, you know, uh, caring more for the wealthy and powerful than for everyone. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world my brethren have not the faith of our lord jesus christ the lord of glory with respect of persons for if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing and say unto him Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou here, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do they not blaspheme that worthy name by which ye are called? If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. Doers of the word, says James, is what you will be if you actually believe. Do the right thing. Practice mutual aid and solidarity. That's what Jesus asked of you. Visit the fatherless and widows. Love thy neighbor. Treat the poor as well as the rich. If you honor the wealthy, you have sinned and are going to hell. If you are not an anarcho communist, says James, and says John the Baptist, and says Jesus, then you are not a follower of Christ. So I think that pretty much does it. The early church and James knew Jesus personally, and anarcho-communism, sharing everything, fighting coercion, valuing mutual aid, was their key belief. The other guy, the Christ guy, he came from Paul and Augustine and Constantine and Plato. None of them knew Jesus. Although the Bible tells us that Paul met Jesus, you know, after Jesus died. My guess is this is pro-Paul propaganda. James and the apostles knew Jesus when he was alive, and they built... An anarcho-communist utopia, although I'm academic enough to remind you that these texts are corrupted too. (laughs) So it's hard to know exactly what actually happened in the early church. I will say, one of the tricks you can do as a historian and say, if the book of James and the book of Acts seems to me to cut pretty hard against Paul and the Roman Catholic view of things and yet they have been included in and yet they have been included in the bible that suggests that the people putting the bible together knew they couldn't leave anarchism out even if they wanted to but that's just speculation so if this is the real jesus who are the real christians i'm committed to multiple interpretations of everything and i'm not here to tell anyone they are not a real christian let's try this distinction in the same way that i distinguish anarchism a belief system anarchy, a belief system <laughs> that is actually the opposite of anarchism, I want to distinguish between Christians and followers of Christ. Christians are judgmental. They respect the wealthy and the powerful over the poor and the sick. They persecute heretics, murder Jews, make war on Muslims. They torment and reject queer people. They justify slavery with the Bible They demand the supremacy of men over women. They delight in private property. They ignore almost all of what Jesus said and prefer Plato to Jesus. Really, they just want someone to tell them that everything is fine and that if they are happy and powerful, it's because they deserve it. And if they are sad and poor, it's because someone is going to make it up to them after they die. Followers of Christ are pretty much the complete opposite. They give up everything they have until they are sure that everyone has enough. They are non-judgmental and accepting of all. They think that the defeat of coercion and its replacement with mutual aid is the kingdom of God that they are working towards. They aren't respecters of persons, but value everyone, regardless of wealth, social status, race, gender, or anything else that might be used to label anyone in a negative way. All followers of Christ really want is for Jesus' words about the poor being blessed and the meek inheriting the earth to be true. And they're not that interested in what Greek philosophers and 4th century Roman theologians have to say. Whether Jesus was a God on Earth, like Thor or Zeus, or merely a great teacher, like Lao Tzu or Socrates, doesn't actually matter. What matters is if you are a follower of Christ or a Christian. I am convinced, as Rauschenbusch was, and as Gandhi was, that you can be either a follower of Christ or a Christian, but not both, and as near as I can tell, Only one of those actually has anything to do with the person who lived 2,000 years ago. Now I gave Oscar Wilde the first word, I'm going to give Gandhi the last word in this episode. Hate the sin and not the sinner is a precept which, though easy enough to understand, is rarely practiced. And that is why the poison of hatred spreads in the world. Man and his deeds are two distinct things. It is quite proper to resist and attack a system but to resist and attack its author is tantamount to resisting and attacking oneself. For we are all tarred with the same brush and are children of one and the same creator, and as such the divine powers within us are infinite. To slight a single human being is to slight those divine powers, and thus to harm not only that being, but with him, the whole world. Okay, that's that. There'll be a Q&A next week. Send in your questions to everydayanarchismpodcast at gmail.com. And remember that you can go to everydayanarchism.com to sign up for the newsletter, Anarchist Hot Takes, and support the show financially. You can also support the show by telling your friends or reviewing it on Apple Podcasts. And for all the people who have been doing that, and especially those who have been supporting financially, I, I'm, I'm truly grateful. Making this podcast was a, a dream that I came up with during the worst professional year of my life, and you are helping me make it a reality. I... I can't express how much that means to me. All that's left is to say that the theme music, which you're about to hear, is by David Hill.